Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Do you know what I was doing yesterday? I was at a four-year-old's birthday party, which oh, took, took me back to the days when I used to spend most Saturdays taking children around to birthday parties. Now, I, I'm sure this will ring a bell with, uh, with some of the massive who probably do the same thing. There's nothing quite like turning up a child's birthday party on Saturday afternoon and somebody offers you a sausage roll and then a glass of warm white wine and you slip into the little fuck, don't you, of kind of relaxation. You, know? you do. And you sit there talking with a load of other mothers and fathers or whatever, and then you go home and you don't quite want your dinner and you just fall asleep in front of the You fall telly. asleep. <laughs> yeah, because you're full of marshmallows. And- <laughs> yeah. I can remember a, um, a, a, a children's birthday party we had. Did I tell you about this? When where the Punch and Judy show was stormed by the uh, by the angry mob, oh, it was terrible. This really sweet woman came along, and she was the kind. Of, it was kind of Punch and Judy in entertainment. She had a little booth that she was in with little curtains and all that, and we got it all set up, you know. And us, the other parents, sort of went next door and yeah, hit the bottle of white. <laughs> Recovered from the strain of trying to to uh, you know control all these children, and suddenly we heard the sound of a little voice going "Charge!" <laughs> we rented. I can remember it so vividly, seeing all these kids dressed in, um, you know, with plastic knights' helmets on and swords, <laughs> and things, you know, <laughs> charging the punch and Judy show. She then fell over. I can remember her legs sticking out the bottom, and I was like, "Oh, this is just an absolute catastrophe." We had a similar one when our, our youngest was about seven and we'd fixed up her whole class to come and we fixed up a children's entertainer. And I got a phone call 10 minutes before the children's entertainer was due to arrive saying that he'd been involved in an accident on the M25. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I have to confess, I didn't give it the most sympathy. I, I, I pretty much said, does that mean he's not yeah. coming? All you can think of is, how are we going to entertain these children? <laughs> Oh, God. Just a race down the news agent buy buy sweets and wrapping paper for it, put together a game game of pass the parcel. Anyway, sorry, yeah, that was yeah. that. That was no, that. No. So anyway, seamlessly, let's move on. What's the story with Rick Astley? I, I like and, the Rick Astley story. God. Rick Astley, Rick Astley, benchmark of all nafness, has entered the, the, you know, the precious, sacred, rarefied, hallowed portal of the Smiths. <laughs> And he's been met 
with the public disapproval of Johnny Marr. It's just such an extraordinary story. Mick, Mick, Rick Astley, of course, memorably immortalised in a song by Nick Lowe. Do you remember that? All Men Alliance? Do you remember the kind of says, uh, says oh, yeah. do you remember Rick Astley? He had a big fat hit and it, it was, was ghastly. ghastly. <laughs> it was ghastly. So it kind of universally derided, you know. But, you know, a massive, colossal Smiths fan. And he's always talked about them very publicly and, and, and how much he loves them, you know. And he said about, I don't know, five years ago, that he wanted to do a tour of Smiths songs. And uh, and he thought he'd be lynched if he ever played in Manchester. And Morrissey, in fact, I think since then has r- 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 included a backstage photograph of Morrissey with Astley on the cover of a reissue of the last of the famous international playbooks. So you kind of get the impression it's kind of it's sort of mutual, certainly with 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 Miles anyway. So anyway, Astley did a couple of nights at the Forum uh, in Kentish Town, uh, you know, a, a, a few nights ago, because they're about to play the Albert Hall in Manchester. And the clips are really good. Have you seen them? There's clips of them doing this charming man. It's so it's him and the Blossoms. The Blossoms are very kind of really hip, Stockport kind of indie band, you know. And I, 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 I watched this, and I'm no Smith fan, but I thought this is perfectly good. It's perfectly I thought it was acceptable. perfectly good. It's totally <laughs> acceptable, you know. And, you know, then they're effectively a tribute band. You know, these are not interpretations of Smith's songs. They're not doing that kind of, this is how it should be done. It's not their version of it. They are the most note-to-note, you know, note-to-note, faithful reproductions as possible. It sounds just like the record, you know. But, of course, it's not purely a tribute band. It's Rick Astley. Hence, Johnny Morris tweeted that it is both funny and horrible at the same time, which I thought seemed a bit cruel and unkind. I'm sorry. I mean, you obviously just can't deal with the fact that it's Rick Astley. It's just full of that kind of snobbery, isn't it? There's, you? there's your point. And this will move us seamlessly on to another subject, which is quite similar, actually. Yeah. Which is somebody's made uh, what looks like a very interesting um, documentary film called, what's it called? Listening to Kenny G. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a woman called Penny Lane who's a yeah. quite distinguished documentary maker. And she was asked to make a music documentary for a festival. And she said she wasn't very interested in the format, but she was interested in, in people's attitudes to music. <clears throat> and wouldn't it be interesting to make a film about, about somebody whose music people go out of their way to be disrespectful about? And so she thought, let's do Kenny G. And so she got in touch with Kenny G and said, how would you like to cooperate in making a film about why people hate you? Why people hate you, precisely. <laughs> Which Kenny is a G. really original idea. Right? Really original think? idea. Because every it just struck me that every music documentary has one thing in common. It's all about the fact that you need to appreciate more the act in question. This yeah. is not, this is about a, a documentary about someone that suggests actually that he's overappreciated yeah. by the people who like him. Yeah. And that he's actually really, really terrible, <laughs> as you say. He cooperated in making it, which is interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit like well, it's a bit like James Blunt, isn't it? You know, those, James Blunt's the other those people who de- decide to just take it on the chin and make yeah. a virtue of it. So, but you know, and, and great, just just to make a point, just remember how 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 uh, what a benchmark for ghastliness he is. Um, it, there's a, a South Park episode in which one note of Kenny G's music makes people soil their undergarments. <laughs> and then and somebody he's interviewed talking about this, of course, says it's really funny. It has risen above it and it's highly amused. But you wonder, we'll get onto that. You wonder if it really is. But carry on. Yes. Well, no, because it, it just, what struck me, I haven't seen the film, but just, you know, hearing her talk about it and him talk about it, is that um, it kind of isolates the the great truth about people's, uh, responses to music 
It's, it's, it, they're not responding to music at all. They're completely responding to their view of of whether they appreciate and and uh, and like the musician involved. That's what it's all about. Yeah, you know, if you you know you know people have just decided they don't like Kenny G, and that's partly the look of him. It's partly the kind of person yeah. he is. You know, it's the context in which he's played. All the, it's all the stuff is associated with rather than the music. Yeah. And the same thing applies with, you know, Rick Astley. There's Rick Astley doing a perfectly acceptable version of, uh, you know, I can't remember what's Charming Man. There's Charming Man. Yeah, yeah. And perfectly acceptable. If you just heard it, you know, coming in from the room next door, you'd think it was absolutely fine. It's only it's people's horror that it's Rick Astley but doing that's the point. If it was a tribute band, Johnny Marr would think, well, fair enough. You know, yes. there's a market for it. We're not providing that. Morrissey yes. isn't. I'm yeah. not. Somebody wants it. They're really enjoying it. It's being done really faithfully and really affectionately. Great. But no, it's Rick Astley. It's the idea that we want fans. We want people to like our music, but we only want a certain type of fan. Yeah, yeah. Which some people just don't, you know. And she's very sweet in the documentary because she talks about the fact that, you know, she appreciates a lot of the people who listen to Kenny G. They have hard lives and Kenny G brings them an enormous amount of uh, of um, you know of uh, of of calm and entertainment yeah, yeah, and you yeah. know and, and that's every, absolutely right but it's all entirely this snobbery you know that and of course the critics all make really good points you know they say it's artistic laziness it's a shameless cultural appropriation you know he did this really creepy posthumous collaboration with Louis Armstrong with old yes. footage, which of course really annoyed people. Yeah. It's soulless wallpaper music for shopping malls and all that, you know, and uh, that's fair enough. But I mean, you know, a lot of it, I think is to do with the fact that it's successful too. You told oh, a really God, interesting yeah. story where, um, because, you know, once you're successful, people think you are then just cynically trying to create music entirely for commercial reasons. There's no art or self-expression involved, you know. And if you think of all those people who, who didn't sell that many records, Nick Drake and Big Star and XTC, these noble, glorious failures, let's be honest, all of them would love to have sold more records. But he tells a story about being at the Saratoga Jazz Festival and when he's not very well known. And as a review, a very high-profile reviewer reviews him and says he's absolutely fantastic. And the next year he comes back to the same festival, having made it and suddenly become selling huge numbers of records. And the same, and he plays the same set because it went down so well. And the same reviewer reviews him and says precisely the polar opposite of what he said before. That was quite funny, really. I'm sure. So it's all about personality. And I'm going to move seamlessly on to a further illustration of the same thing, actually, which is. Rolling Stone magazine, if it <laughs> exists, yeah, 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 yeah. whatever form it's in, has decided that it's about time to um, to shake up its uh, its five hundred greatest records of all time by by kind of it, it's a little bit like you know university literature departments decide to shake up the canon of great literature, don't they, by saying, we're going to kick out Jane Austen. Spencer, get rid of Chaucer. (laughs) And we're going to bring in Sally Rooney or whatever. That's right, exactly. Exactly that. (laughs) Because that's a bit bit more edgy. Yeah. And it kind of, it illustrates the same point. And I'm just, shall I go through the top 10? Go through the top 10. Interestingly, I note that on their website, this is illustrated, the biggest picture is Billie Eilish. So the 500 greatest songs of all time, and you know, which goes back to ni- their earliest ones from 1937, but they illustrated with Billy Eilish. So that's 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 the point they're trying to get across. Isn't it? Go on, oh, absolutely. Top 10. 
Do the top 10. So top 10, uh, respect Aretha Franklin. Uh, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Uh, A Change is Going to Come by Sam Cooke. Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan. Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana. What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. Strawberry Feels the Beatles. Get Your Freak On, Missy Elliott. Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Hey Ya by Outcast. God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Superstition, Stevie Wonder. Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Waterloo Sunset. I Want to Hold Your Hand. Crazy in Love. Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody, Purple Rain. Imagine, oh, for God's sake. I know, that, that upsets me. I'm sorry. You're going to choose a John Lennon song. Oh, don't God. choose that one. Please don't choose Dancing one. on My Own Rob by Robin and then Strange Fruit by Billy Holiday. You know, so there's two things that struck me about this. Is, is One is all these tunes seem to have been chosen to represent something Completely. more than themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't come upon I haven't come upon you know Dancing Queen by ABBA. No. In this list. Absolutely everything well, is. Well, long way down you get the zombies and John Prine and people who don't really represent anything, but not in the top echelons, you know. No, no. It's everything's there. It's like teacher wants to illustrate a point, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, and uh, you know, if you've got a list where the highest, uh, the highest Marvin Gaye tune is "What's Going On." You've got it wrong. I'm sorry, because I heard it through the grapevine. Is by some distance the best Marvin Gaye. Inarguably better. Inarguably. And when and when Dave Marsh wrote his you know "Heart of Rock and Soul," greatest records ever made, he put her through grapevine at number one, and it, it's, a, it's a pretty good argument saying it is yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, Whereas true. what's going on is kind of hey, it's what it represents. It's all what it represents. Yeah. So that's one side of it, and also they have to have artists that they approve of. Completely. That they're quite happy talking about, you know. So you don't get any renegade. I don't know. Are Black Sabbath on this list? You probably, you may have. I, do, I have skimmed through most. Of it. I don't think they were. No, because each one has a little piece written by a kind of rock journalist. <clears throat> And so obviously it's got to be, they prefer acts where there's something to say, isn't there? You know, there's, yeah. a, there's not just, a, it's a record by a pop group. You know? Has it got Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys on there? I don't yeah, think it has. has it got I Louis Alouai by the King? Almost certainly not. <laughs> has he got Rumble by Link Ray? No, I don't, I don't know, think it will. See Me could do better. Go <laughs> you back, know. do it again. But the other thing that struck me about going through it is that I think it gets to a point, once you get beyond a certain passage of time, you can't hold that stuff together and say it's in the same universe because it's so clearly, you know, music made in the 50s and 60s and 70s made in a different way from the way music is made today, you know, serving a different purpose. But completely, exactly. That those, I mean, I don't think, obviously, I see the reason for doing it and we're talking about it and it gets 500 songs into the public domain that might not be listened to it. That's all great. But the idea that you can compare Harry Nielsen and The Weeknd or Missy Elliott and Neil Young do you know what I mean? These things are intended, or dance music actually, dance music, and 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 kind of and specifically to make you dance, or compare with music that's designed to make you cry or feel euphoric or nostalgic or whatever. That 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 doesn't really stack up at all. And the other thing, as you were saying about the time frame, is that if you go back from um, you know the weekend to Miles Davis, 
the Miles Davis track. Interesting, not a song, is it? So no, what by no, Miles Davis? No, Would you call no. that a song? I don't remember that as having any lyrics on it. But anyway, <laughs> let's not get split and split against it. But if you go back 60 years, and 60 years before Miles Davis is I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside by Florrie Ford. Right. So that, that sums up good, just how... Good song. Yeah, exactly. But how difficult it is to compare those yeah, things. Yeah. They're not in the same universe. You know, the earliest one I could find was Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues from 1937, which is uh, ranked next to Big Mark is Just a Friend. And on the other side, I think is Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. That was 84 years ago. Now, 84 years before Robert Johnson, 1853, sheet music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When the Corn is Waving Annie Dear by Charles Blamford. You know, so again, it just doesn't make sense to kind of have those things you know, subjected to the same kind of criteria, does it? They've got, they got a Robert Johnson on there, you know. I think that was the earliest okay. kind of song. Tell me, is Bing Crosby's White Christmas on here? Oh, right. I don't know. It probably don't, isn't. Don't, possibly not. <laughs> You cannot argue that Bing Crosby's White Christmas is not a great song. It's simply impossible to argue that at all. You know, it was his enduring hit over, you know, decades and decades and decades. But it just doesn't fit. You know, if you're going to be it broad, it doesn't represent anything. Exactly, it doesn't represent anything. Um, Toto's Africa is in there, though, Dave. So that's oh, surprising. is it really? Yeah, that's a surprising one. <laughs> oh well, fair enough. I know. Fair enough. And uh, well, I don't think what they should do is have the nerve to say year zero is two thousand and one, and just say we're starting again. It's a different world, you know. And I think actually, increasingly. It is a different world, actually, for all kinds of reasons. And uh, you know, you look at you look at the story. You know, I think one of the one of the one of the highest kind of records of um, that I still regard as recent recent is "Crazy in Love," uh, Beyonce. When was "Crazy in Love" made, Mark? Um, well, it's going to be a while ago now. Is it fifteen years ago? I don't know. It's it's uh, it's more, it's uh, two thousand and three, I think. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's damn that... nearly damn nearly twenty years. Ago. That's incredible. Isn't it? <laughs> and uh, so you're saying they should, if they carry on doing that, which they will do, that they should no longer, they should no longer have the Beach Boys and, and yeah, uh, I think they should the say, life they should say because, because that's another the, century. Yeah, because I think the truth is, if you kind of I'm going to say controversial thing. If you feel Hey Ya by Outcast, if you feel it, not just appreciate it, feel it, you probably don't feel you really got me by the kinks. You probably don't. It's a generational thing. Yeah. You know, it's the world's changed. People are looking for different things, and that's absolutely fine. And so what they should say is, our Rolling Stone world is, is 21st century onwards, and we're perfectly happy with it. And we here are our great records. Our greatest record ever made is Crazy in Love by Beyonce. We start there. That's very interesting because they would then run the risk of losing a load of people who, who bought it because they, they like the kind of last century music. But those people don't probably don't no, buy now anyway. Let's be clear about this. No, nobody on no. God's earth buys Rolling Stone no, they anymore. They, they just don't. literally they don't, they don't really, do it. No, they don't. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a website. It's, it's a digital presence, you know. Yeah. Um, and that the problem they've got traditionally is that um, is that there's more interest in the older acts than there is in the new ones. And so, you know, if it kind of when Charlie Watts dies, I bet there's more traffic to the Rolling Stone site 
than when something happens with Billie Eilish. Yeah. Just because that's the way the world works, you know. Uh, so I think they ought to have the nerve to say, no, this is our world. We're starting again. It started yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not even yesterday, 20, 21 years ago, let's remind ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Which is a hell of a long time. And uh, and stop trying to get these things to fit in with each other. But anyway, as you say, they probably achieved whatever they wanted to do, which is to get All people they want talking to do is about just draw attention to a load of songs you might not otherwise hear. Fair enough. What they want to do most of all is draw attention to Rolling Stone. And we've done that. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So what is it? 50 years ago this week since the first Old Grey Whistle Test. Featuring yeah, it Rick- is. It was in uh, the first one was September the 21st, 1971. Who was and on? I'd like to think that I, I can't remember who was on, but I can just remember those very early programs because they were presented by Richard Williams. They were. I can remember meeting him around that time. He must have been about, I don't know, whatever it was, 17, 16, 17 years old, and being overawed. He was very, very cool. He looked like a he looked like a bit like Dickie Betts from the from the <laughs> yes, Ormond Brothers did. band. He did. Fabulous moustache. He, he looked did. so kind of handsome <laughs> <and> kind of, <laughs> he was always smoking cigarettes and looking Still, still cool. does, Richard. Still does. He does. He, he, does. he doesn't smoke yeah. cigarettes anymore, but no, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the days when you could uh, you could smoke on the telly, weren't they? You could, you could smoke during I interviews. Could, I can remember yeah. Bob later on smoking smoking on the telly. Yeah, uh, and a Bob, I, the every, Bob era, I remember really vividly too. Do you remember that? I mean, you know, I was supposed to oh, have just been yeah. in college days before that. You know, and uh, <laughs> it was terribly sincere and rather earnest. The general tone was that we are, well, you know, underground music is an art form as significant as jazz. It was slightly joyless, actually, don't you think? And uh, I mean, it was, it, but incredibly good, incredibly good. Is he never Bob sitting there in his knitted tank tops, applauding, <laughs> applauding the tightness of the band. It was about musicianship, wasn't it? <laughs> and were they nice guys? That was yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Really nice guys, and. Uh, no, the thing I was, uh, I wrote a thing in Radio Times about this recently. And um, I think the, the, the major problem that Whistle Test, through all its incarnations and all its different hosts and um, over the years, it never got over the fundamental problem, which is when a live band finishes playing, you, you to need silence. to hear. Yeah. You need need to hear response because the response is as exciting as the music. Completely. And so it's like, I tell you what it's like, it's like football during lockdown. It was with no crowds. Completely. Everything seemed anticlimactic. There's no explosion when somebody scores a goal. Uh, And and therefore more than half football goes once the ground is gone. And so a similar thing applies if you do live rock and roll on telly without a crowd. Though. Without a crowd. That's where, that's where the, the, the tube had such an edge on us. Yes. Because they were live and they had bands, they had an audience kind of milling around where people danced. Yeah. And it was all fantastic. Yeah. Whereas you'd get, you know, Rory Gallagher finishing on some tumultuous high note with screaming feedback or whatever, and, and then there'd just be the, the silence, just a load of uh, guys in quilted jackets moving their cameras yeah, back. Moving cameras back. Readjusting their, head, their defenders, do you remember? <laughs> yeah. They had headphones or they had huge, great kind of earmuffs to protect their hearing. And they, uh, yeah, oh, they had non-fashion cardigans 
didn't they? Those yeah, guys yeah. who used to work in BBC yeah, used to yeah. push. And they were, of course, that was the other thing about cameramen in those days. They were men, weren't they? They were yeah, they all. Were. It was a completely male-dominated totally. kind of uh, craft setup, yeah. wasn't it? Wasn't it in those days? But how thrilling! I just remember being incredibly excited by it because you didn't get to see these people anywhere Not else. Not at all. I mean, Not you know, all. if you were lucky enough to go. And, Get some ticket to go and see me at the Hammersmith Odeon, so you might, might be, but even then you'd be miles away. The that's that's the, close up. the thing. That's the thing. I mean, when I can remember when I first saw Rai Kuda, uh, when he came over, and I can't remember which album it would be, but he'd been, been around for a while, and I'd bought his records and used to pour over the tiny bits of information that you could get about some of the Rai Kuda, which weren't many in those days. And then he appeared on Whistletoast. Playing vigilante man, I think I'm yeah. what I'm saying, on a mandolin, wearing a, uh, uh, I think what we call a do rag, don't we? Yeah, do rag. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that for us. And yeah. uh, and you look at the thing, wow. And then you realise after a while, God, he's got he's got a glass eye. And you 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 know you you never you didn't know that kind of stuff at all. So the amount of visual information that you got from people. When you first saw them, you first saw them move. Yeah. It's unimaginable nowadays because everybody sees everything move all the time. You know, my, my, you know, the, the four year old's birthday party that I went to yesterday was more extensively covered than Woodstock, probably. You know what I mean? Eight camera shoot, <laughs> it's just, hair and makeup. Everything is yeah. nowadays. You know? Whereas it wasn't back then. So when Little Feet pulled up on, on Whistle Test, it's, oh, my God, that's what they look like. They, oh, God, there's the tall one. There's the short yeah. one. There's the chubby one. All that kind of stuff. Well, the thing you wanted all... was you wanted more wide shots. You wanted to see the whole band together and the way they, the, the yeah. dynamic. Because mostly it was all close-ups of, of uh, fretboards. That was Tom. <laughs> That was Tom Corcoran. Tom the, Corcoran loved all the that. The director, yeah. Love that. Who's playing the solo? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and, and, the, and the facial expressions of the person playing the solo, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, it's, but now I can still remember. I remember Beef. I remember seeing Beef Art. I remember that Raikud. I remember the Bob Marley. I think I saw, but I, I, in my head I did. But I, maybe I've just seen it so many times since on YouTube because it's phenomenal. Johnny Winter, do you remember Greg and Cher Allman? Hilarious doing. Well, they really were Greg and Cher Allman. Cher were on it, yeah, doing wow. the All Man and Woman tour. Oh my and, god! And uh, Little Feet, yeah, and uh, Bonnie Ray, Tom Waits, I thought it was fantastic. And the thing I also really vividly remember was the Capricorn Records picnic. Yeah. So Whispering Bob went to this event, which was kind of you know the Allman Brothers label and all that in Macon, and Macon and interviewed uh, future president. Um, uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. First kind of rock and roll president. No, it was the first BBC interview with uh, Jimmy Carter, I think I'm right in saying. And so it was a major feather in the cap of Mike Appleton, who was the producer, you know. Yeah. That you come back from your your jaunt to the States and, oh, we got an interview with this guy who's running for pres- president, which has yeah, really helped him. So I also, yeah. I also remember when it was our turn that that you know we were you know people who were chosen to do that program were journalists, not presenters. Rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but that was Mike's policy, wasn't it? That we had to be people who knew a lot about it. Oh, but therefore, we were terribly self-conscious about <laughs> introducing the groups. <laughs> They're just so funny. I found a load of scripts up in the attic. Oh, really? Have you and got? I, um, I know. Oh, minutes I found a really, a really sweet one from you. It's a really fun little uh, little. Um, 
Has he got LinkedIn. my link written in it? Yeah, oh. it's got your link written in it. Yeah. There's, there's the thing. This is a, when, when was this? This was the 15th of October 1985. The bands are the Rain Parade and Blumange, and special guests uh, are Robert Wyatt and Jerry Damas. There you go. Robert yeah, it's you Wyatt. and me and Andy Kershaw. There's a brilliant one here where, where we always used to find it very hard to introduce groups that we, you know, as a presenter, you should just say, This is what you're about to see. Just But we couldn't help but advertise our own feelings. And you very sweetly, your link goes, The Clash there from 1980 with the greatest song ever written, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. Now, if you're one of those million people who've thrashed your copy of Sade's first LP to within an inch of its diamond life, you'll be relieved to hear that her new album, The Promise, is released on the 4th of November. Meanwhile, here's the latest single from Britain's best-groomed singer. It's called Sweetest Taboo. It's so sweet because, you know, we used to do that all the time. So you get the impression that David Hapworth is very slightly extending a barge pole <laughs> to, to Sade. Not really my bag, but it might be yours. I'm just doing my job. <laughs> Oh God, that's so funny! To be reminded, we're always being asked to to to. There were groups like I can't remember. Though. I was looking through the scripts. We had groups like Cook the Books, Kissing the oh, Pink, God. Annabelle Lamb, It's Immaterial, Oh God. Faith Brothers, Cowboys International, and Ally Ally. I can't remember anything about any of them actually. But it was oh, our job to get. The I can remember excited. Annabelle Lamb. I can remember that, and because you used to have to, if you had people who had no kind of track record. You used to have to comb their record company bio to find anything interesting to say about them. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Because anybody, you know, if you've not read record company bios, they're always full of things like hard-gigging five-piece, you That's know, right. yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, a unique synthesis of rock and soul or all the stuff that no human being ever said, ever. And so you'd always comb it for the personal detail because the personal detail is always the thing that, interest people yeah. and so i remember I annabelle lamb the only interesting paragraph in her entire biog was the bit that said that she had been a nurse so i thought that's interesting it's different you know so i mentioned this and after the run-through somebody from the record company the manager me, came up and said mate never word can you not mention the fact she's been a oh, okay. God's sake. But I think I think I kept it in, you know. I'm sure you did, because I mean you're responsible and you're bloody lucky to be on the program at all. What are you talking <laughs> Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Oh my god. But Mike Mike wanted a journalist to do it because I mean there's partly an economic argument because if you have people who write their own links, you don't have to get yes. somebody else to do it for That's them. Writer. And this is how ninety-nine percent of television works. Those words being spoken by the presenter, the presenter has only just read them. When yeah, they we wrote our own article. material. Yeah, <laughs> we, we we did our own material. And, God, uh, I've got so many memories of it. They've just been coming back. Do you remember you and I interviewed Kate Bush, and she'd come oh, up yeah, on a train yeah, yeah. up to Manchester, Manchester. to practice yeah. her her uh, choreography for the upcoming tour. She was such a big deal. They allowed her to use the, uh, no, the she wasn't band. She wasn't Tory. She was practicing for a video. It was a video. Maybe it's a video. That's right. Yeah. And because it was the dreaming on what it was the album called. The yeah, Dreaming? it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think, I don't think she was on tour, but she came all the way to Manchester to do it. Great, I remember an trouble. episode of Rock Around the Clock where, you know, people answered the phones because you rang in for the video vote. Yeah. And Morrissey turning up. And we made him. We joshed Morrissey into answering the phone. Isn't that amazing? I'd love to see that it. clip. 
There's a load of because the way they used to work the, the the video vote, which I remember with great fondness. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. those were the days where people would stay up all night. Yeah. Just on the off chance that they might see ZZ Top doing "Give Me All Your Loving" or Meatloaf, you know, uh, "Paradise by the Dashboard Light" or whatever. Bruce Springsteen's Rosalita for the nth time, and they would ring up to vote. And there would be there would be a bank of phone operators in vision in the studio who would all be BBC accounts department staff on yep. their weekend off coming to be on the telly, which they thought was very exciting. And Morrissey came in to plug whatever it was. Was he, was he on his own at that point? Was he left the Smiths? No, he couldn't have done that. No, right? no, no, no. It's very early on. Just, uh, yeah. The Smiths were just taking off. Yeah, know? they're just I taking know. off. But he, he, so he was in. looking for publicity. And I think we said to him, why don't you answer the phones? Yeah. And he was. <laughs> Can you imagine ringing in to, to, can we have, you know, or it would have been the Eurythmics. You know? Yes. And getting, getting miles answering. Think, Hang on a minute. <laughs> sitting beyond, between a bunch Hello. of people in the BBC accounts department. First of many humiliations that he was to endure in his career, but I, 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 yeah, people would sit up all night just the chance to see something like that because you, because you couldn't you, see it again, you couldn't yeah. see videos. Yeah. You, yeah, you, you saw them the one time that they were broadcast. You couldn't buy them at that stage; they were just promotional things, weren't they? Oh, we used to get during Rock Around the Clock. We used to get the kind of rock stars who could who would, could be persuaded to stay up all night in a BBC studio. Captain Sensible. Oh yes, fish. Regular fixture. <laughs> those kind of those kind of people. Oh dear. They lit up like Christmas trees by about <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but there were some great. I can remember. Oh, I remember Elvis Costello in the attractions. They were wonderful. Elvis Elvis coming on with a crown, which he which he then took on. Andy Kershaw was introducing him, and I remember him taking the crown off and sticking it on Andy's head during the link. And, and Nick Haywood, do you remember him being on with Dave Maddox from Fairport Convention on drums? Oh, good. We were very excited. By, very by Dave Maddox as much as anything else. Yeah, we you end up be, by Dave Maddox, yeah. Well, I, I'd like Nick Haywood as well, but Dave yeah, Maddox, yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's a proper star. Yeah. Oh, happy days. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Okay, any other business? This is following up last week, actually. Remember we were talking about when I went to see the move at Queen's Hall in Leeds and they turned up but didn't play you know, yeah, because yeah. their equipment had got stranded and so forth. And I asked, um, had people ever gone to see a band who turned up but didn't play? And it turned out quite a lot of people had, actually. Oh, go on. Um, and, uh, okay, um, Nick T says, in the early 90s, he went to see Tanita Tickerham in Reading Stage was set, orchestra in place. She did one song and then walked off. Never found out why. I think it might have been stage fright. Andy C. went to see Nectar at Slough Community Centre in 1974. Ooh, we're envious. That's a thrilling location. Absolutely. Bass player threw up during the first number and off they went. That's quite good. Christ. John Mantegna, uh, I think I think he's in New York. John, we had him on uh, as a as a birthday guest. I think uh, his parents went to see Frank Sinatra in the nineteen eighties. Sinatra and his musical director arrived, but the charts for the local orchestra to read did not. So the show was cancelled on the spot. That's that's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And. Um, 
Robin Williamson gig in early 90s. He was delayed by traffic, uh, but the gig also functions as a means of bringing together like-minded people. So we had a really nice time chatting about the incredible stream band. He arrived too late to play. But honestly, we had a lovely evening without him, says John A. Never lets you down, Robin Williamson, let's be honest. Old school entertainer. Well, also, I mean, this is an interesting point. Might have done some juggling later on. If if you went to see your favourite artists and they turned up, but there was no gear and they couldn't play for some reason, but they said, tell you what, I'll answer your questions. Yeah, I'll sit here and we'll just do a little Q&A. You'd, be, you'd be, actually be more excited. You'd be, be more, more excited. memorable. More excited. And you get to meet them. Um, Nigel Dick. Uh, Nigel's in, where's Nigel? Colorado or somewhere like that. I think yeah, at the moment you interviewed him. Um, he, he went to see the Stranglers in Norwich around about 1976. They showed up, played two songs. What are you complaining about, Nigel? Hurled abuse at the sound guy and stormed off. No apology, no refund. This next one I like, James Wilkinson. <laughs> he went He went to see... Now, a group I never knew actually existed. This is John Coughlin's Quo. So John Coughlin was the, the, the drummer of the classic lineup status quo. So presumably he ran at some stage a group called John Coughlin's Quo. He disappointed a healthy few at Oswald Twistle Civic Hall, also in the late 90s. John Coughlin <laughs> in Oswald Twistle City Hall. Uh, we made our own entertainment. He says the singer was based in Bradford, was only about 50 miles away, but didn't show up. The rest of the band didn't want to play without him. So, you know, gig didn't take place. Um, John B., John Martin at the Rock Rock Factory in Edinburgh in 1971. He turned up, but was rather incapacitated. You know, I was just about to predict that that was the answer. That was the answer. So, you know, it turned out it happened to a, a lot of people. So um, I, was, I was asking any questions this week. Interesting one, again, from James Wilkinson, actually. says, is there any band of any longevity that's never performed the cover version? I saw that. That's a really good question. On record or on stage since the I can think stage. of three. I think. Oh, go on, go on. I think I can. Well, he mentioned Pink Floyd, and I think he's right. I don't think there's a Pink Floyd cover version really? on any of that. I don't think so. But the ones I thought, I think I'm right in saying that Queen never did either. Oh, yeah. And I don't think Genesis ever did. I mean, sure, there are others too, but I mean... you. Those are three very good suggestions, those yeah. are, because they I don't know if I, I think I'm right. But I just couldn't. I thought about it, and I couldn't remember because they're just. There are certain groups. Pink Floyd being a really good example. You can't imagine Pink Floyd suddenly thinking in the middle of "I'm a gummer." Let's do an old Chuck Berry number. No, yeah, true. <laughs> but I, 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 I simply would have thought in their early days, most groups in their early days do a do a few. I don't think they did. They were but always maybe. the Pink Floyd, weren't they? Yeah, this maybe. Is, this is us. You know. So who did you say? Queen Genesis. Queen. I think Genesis. I don't think Genesis did either. I'm not aware of Queen having done maybe completely uh, wrong having, having done one, um, and then there's obviously no. I mean, if you take people like obviously Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, he they did cover versions, didn't they? They did. Uh, they would did do he, have, did he? Yeah, they? they would do things like blues tunes, wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, I suppose the you know the spontaneous music ensemble probably never did a cover version. You know? No, that's true. Those kind of people, and Mike W says he's travelling to London for two weeks at the end of next month. Travelling, the the, 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 the verb travelling rather suggests that you've got your 
your possessions in a spotted hanky on the end of a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Are you coming with a cat, Mike? (laughs) Are you hitchhiking from wherever? Anyways, travelling to London for two weeks at the end of next month. Do either of us have any suggestions as to what I might want to do or see during my time there? And what are the best record shops in London, in your estimation? God, there are few and far between. Oh, I didn't know. Well, Sister Ray is still going in a new incarnation, which is very, very good. Yeah, I'll tell you that. My the, eldest the, son's absolute fave. But I don't know. I, I can't say that I've been to that many record shops recently. I tell you what's the, what's the good one. I was like looking in, and it's on Broadwick Street. What do they call it? Sound of the Universe or whatever. That place where you can all is where the soul jazz record label oh, yeah, is based yeah. and so forth. That that place I always always like going into because it's so different from anywhere else. And I suppose you know, you know, in places like places like Rough Trade East isn't really is the kind yeah. of is the big one, isn't it? Really, but you might consider it a bit of your if you your beaten track. And you know, I I understand that you can still go. On the zebra crossing in Abbey Road, to have your photograph taken. You can go and do that. Okay, you have to queue to get on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I was there the other day, and there were there were still people doing it. Obviously, there's no there's no no tourists in. I in, love the fact there's a there's, a, there's a cam, isn't it? There's a, there's a webcam that you can you can turn on the Abbey Road webcam, and at any time of day or night, there's nearly always somebody doing it. Um, so usually a drunk. Table. Yeah. Um, uh, Simon Fenton says, what are we hoping for from Peter Jackson's upcoming six-hour Beatles Get Back extravaganza? What are we looking for? I think we're looking for a warm feeling, actually. Well, truth. I think we're going to get it. Well, that's, he's already said that that's been the thrust of it, hasn't it? I mean, I, I, he's gone through it and, 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 and dug out all the things that... Uh, and we've seen bits in the trailer them kind of dancing together and just really funny little spontaneous things based on stuff they read in the newspapers and things. So that'll be good. I mean, I, any amount of, of um, you know, in-studio exchange with the Beatles is fascinating. I've never heard any bit of uh, uh, dialogue on, a, on an outtake that isn't hilariously funny. They were always on, weren't they? That's true. That's true. And sorry, I'm just looking up this. Uh, Chris Budd, Says, who are the worst supergroup in your in your estimation? Who were the worst supergroup? Was it the Baker Gervitz Army? <laughs> <laughs> was it? Was it was Power Station were pretty awful. Power, Power Station. Station. Oh my god! I don't know. They had a hit. Tony Thompson was it? They, they, had, had. they had a hit, but there was something terribly smug about Power Station. They were rather pleased with themselves. They were. I, w- I was going to suggest um, my personal um, favourites were um, Rough Diamond. Do you remember Rough Diamond? Who is in Rough Diamond? <laughs> Slightly less than Super Supergroup. It was Jeff Britton on drums, and Jeff Britton played in Wings. I think he had. Yeah. I think that's what entitled them to be in a supergroup. Damon Butcher on keyboards, of whom I know nothing. Willie Bath on bass guitar, but then the big stars, Clem Clemson on the on guitar, and David Byron out of Uriah Heep oh on lead God, that's vocal. <laughs> and there you go. And they were signed to the label that everybody thinks only ever had kind of hip stuff on on the label, and that was Island Records. So you know, I don't particularly miss any supergroups. Who who are the best supergroups? 
It's Travelly Wilbury, surely the best of the group. Right? Absolutely, undoubtedly. That and yeah. Cream, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I suppose you'd have to argue ELP, although never completely my bag. But they, yeah, you know. But uh, and uh, Travelly Wilbury's phenomenal because that first album genuinely superb. Record, it's a really good record, wasn't it? Really heartwarming and fantastic. Ian Chambers says, "Are we seeing a phenomenon starting?" where our ageing rock stars are forced to take it easy at their age. It's sad to hear Phil Collins and Elton John with serious injuries. Phil Collins had an injury. And El- well, El- he had that back injury, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know if it's still carrying on, I presume it is. You know. well, but, yeah, El- well, they do. Of course they do. I mean, Bruce Springsteen used to do the knee slides on stage till uh, the doctor took him aside and said, mate, leave No, it. he doesn't. You he know. doesn't, but he has knee pads. Oh, does he? Okay. I thought he, he knee. He has knee pads. <laughs> I thought, oh, I thought he still didn't. Oh, okay. uh, but he keeps really fit. Um, yeah. well, I suppose all of them probably keep really fit one way or another. But El- Elton's had a fall, hasn't he? He has. On a hard surface. And I don't think it's specified where the hard surface was. Probably in a marble palace of some kind, I would imagine. But, you know, we... Um, but he's, he's, he's going back on the road, isn't he, when he's recovered? Because this was the... The farewell tour. This was the postponed tour, wasn't it? Yeah. And then and then re-announced there were huge posters all over the tubes, weren't there? Uh, announcing it's back on. So how fed up must they be? No. <laughs> and how fed up are the people with the tickets, Christ? Oh, absolutely. But uh, you know, they'll um, you know, will only their bodies stop them, says Ian Chambers. Yes, Ian. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the limiting factor. Yeah. Because yeah. what else are they gonna do? Can you imagine Elton at home? Can you mention Elton without some gigs to look forward to? Honestly, Elton without an audience. Yeah, no point in El- doing anything. What's Elton going to do? Go and sit in a deck chair? I do not think so. <laughs> you know, these, are, these are guys who've been addicted to kind of the game and the attention that goes with the game ever since they were 20 years old. And they're, they're not going to stop it when they're, what they're, when they're 75. Um, what Alfred Daniel... What goes on tour stays on tour. But did either of you ever have to refuse the advances of pop stars you were trying to interview? Right, what a question. (laughs) And even if we did, would we talk about it now? (laughs) God, no, the only exciting thing that happened to me was that Lucinda Williams fell asleep in a taxi with her head on my shoulder. Oh, there you go. That's nice, isn't it? There you go. But she had drinks. There were people you went to school with that still think you only got ahead in the music business because you slept with Elton John. That's right, I know. <laughs> it's the idea. It's the idea if Elton had Elton had Elton John ch- stands over the kind of the, 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 the portal of rock music. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to sleep I'll with Elton. Couch. I know. <laughs> oh, this podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs> <laughs>